0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name's Robin Mansell. I am the deputy director and provost of the LSE. And um, I'm also a professor in the Department of Media and Communication who specializes in nothing other than cyber this and that, <laughs> and the digital world. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome Edward Lucas back to the LSE. He's an alumnus of the LSE, and um, I'm sure we all very warmly welcome him. Um, He is senior editor at The Economist. He's been covering Eastern Europe since the mid-1980s with postings in Berlin, Moscow, Prague, Vienna, and the Baltic States. He's a regular contributor to the BBC's Today program on Newsnight and to a number of other uh, media outlets. He's also the author of The New Cold War, which is regular regularly updated and has been published in more than fifteen languages tonight he's going to be talking about this cyberphobia, um, identity trust security and the internet these are all big topics and he'll take questions after he's finished before he begins i need to give you uh... some information the first being that for all the twitter users out there the hashtag is LSE Internet. Please put your iPhones on silent so they can rumble away in your pocket silently. We're recording this event and I hope that we'll be able to make a po- podcast available, subject to there being no technical difficulties. As usual, after the lecture, there'll be a chance for you to ask questions, and there'll also be a book signing that will take place inside the hall, and copies will be on sale outside the venue. Um, So please, without further ado from me, welcome our speaker for this evening.
1: Thanks very much indeed, uh, Robin. It's uh, always wonderful to be back at LSE, even if it does mean I have to put a tie on. Um, I want to say at the beginning that I really enjoy hostile questions and pushback. Um, so if you just want to say that you've read my book and you think it's wonderful, that's very nice, but um, I much prefer it if you think that if you've read the book and you think it's rubbish, that's really good. If you haven't read the book but you think what I've said is rubbish, that's still um, going to be very, very, very interesting. Uh, a lot of people have asked why I, as someone who spent their, most of their life writing about European security, starting back in the um, 80s and right up to the present day, would make such a strange turn and write about the security of our computers and networks instead. And the short answer to that is that my publisher asked me to write the book and offered me some money to do it. Um, but the, the other answer is that I actually saw some similarities in the fragility of the European security order that I'd been dealing with, um, both during the Cold War and, and afterwards, and the fragility of the security order on the Internet, um, a rules-based society where people don't really obey the rules, a lot of wishful thinking, um, a lot of changes happening that people weren't fully taking account of, and the, poten- the potential for rogue actors, in the case of European security, chiefly the, uh, um, the, the, the Putin regime in Russia, um, in the case of the Internet, all the different malefactors that we see, um, that we have to deal with, um, to cause far more damage than we think. I... Um, I was going to call this um, talk The Uselessness of Cybersecurity. And one of the first things I want to say is, although this book is called Cyberphobia, um, the word cyber appears, I think, only twice in the book, apart from in direct quotes. Once is on the cover, and the other is in the glossary, where I make a rather dismissive reference, because I basically feel that if anybody uses the word cyber, um, they probably don't know what they're talking about, and you should immediately drill down and say, what exactly do you mean? Um, we tend to talk about cyber with this incredibly useful catchphrase, but under examination it dissolves very quickly. There's a huge range of crimes and attacks and pranks and stunts that are conducted that come under the general heading of cyber attack. But when you break them down and ask who's the perpetrator, who's the victim, you see there's such a wide range that it doesn't become particularly helpful to sometimes to group them together. Um, what, of course, they have in common is that it's computers and networks that are sometimes the victims of the attack, sometimes being used to launch the attack, sometimes the, um, the in, in, entire um, form of the attack happens over computers and networks. So that makes sense to look at, but I don't like the word cyber very much. I also don't really like the word cybersecurity very much, because I feel that if you were worried about crime and you had someone who was obsessed with locks and keys you'd think this is quite an interesting subsection of the problem we have, and you can go on about how you've got, you know, I've got the latest banum lock, and you've know, got little magnetic things so you can't 3, 3D print it and so on. And sure, you know, locks and keys are very interesting things, um, but they are only a very small subset of, of security, and you wouldn't want to give people the impression that by doing the right thing with uh, their locks and keys, that they were somehow making their house secure. There'd be a whole load of other things you need to worry about too, not least who has access to the keys, but also what about your windows and your roof and your garden and all the, all, all, all the other things. Um, so I, I, I find the whole idea of cybersecurity is, is, tends to be something that people use when they're trying to sell you something. And although, as I will get on to later in the talk, I think we are moving into an era where there are now some security solutions out there that if you put them together in the right combination, and if you're willing to spend the money and take the time, you actually can do things that will, if not give you total security, um, will give you um, quite a high degree of security. Most of what's been sold under the cybersecurity label over the last 5, 10, 15 years um, is basically useless. Um, and it's been very lucrative for the people involved, not necessarily for the shareholders and the investors in the company, but certainly for the people um, earning the salaries. But it doesn't really help, and I'll get on to why in a moment. But the fundamental point of the book, um, which and so there's a very distressingly small number of copies out there, so do make sure that you hurry to the front of the queue and, and, and get one afterwards. I always tell the booksellers they don't bring nearly enough to these sort of things. Um, The um, fundamental point of the book is that our dependence on the Internet is expanding, um, growing much faster than our ability to defend ourselves. And the Internet wasn't designed to be secure. I was a student here at the school in 1980 to 83, the days when there were only, I think, three or four computer terminals. I don't think we had our own mainframe then in the basement of the library. Um, there was a place where you could go and um, it was an extremely arcane and rare thing. But we were connected to what we now call the Internet and you could exchange messages with UCL or if you really felt desperate, exchanging with Kings. Um, and um, the, um, if anyone had gone to the computer people who were running our system then and said, guess what? This packet-switched messaging network which you're developing is going to become the central nervous system of modern life. We're going to use it Um, to run the entire admission system of the school. We're going to use it for promoting the school. We're actually going to use it for e-commerce. They'd have said, what's e-commerce? You said, we're going to use the central nervous system, which will underpin all our commercial transactions with the backbone of our banking system, and we'll use it for all our messaging. They would have looked at you in horror and said, but it's not designed to do that. Um, this system was not designed with any security considerations in mind. The, anybody can log on. You, have, you had you could log on with admin as your login, and your password was usually password. Um, and in fact, this is still often the case. Um, and the the authentication of users was simply not was simply not there. When I worked over the road at the BBC, um, they also had a computer system in Bush House, and that at least made some effort to try and make sure that you were um, you were the person that you said you were. But even even then, the old ATEX system was completely um, completely insecure. The one thing that did work in those days was the Telex system. And I'm not sure anybody, I'm one of the, probably, possibly the only person in this room. Has anyone here sent a Telex? Ah, oh, wonderful. I'd love to give you a, f- a free copy of my book, but they're unfortunately not mine to give away. But the, the t- <laughs> Telex was a really secure, hardwired, low-bandwidth, point-to-point messaging system, um, which at speeds of 300 boards, which is so... Minuscule—you'd hardly be able to translate into the sort of um, speeds that we—you you know, can send a legally binding message. In those days, the school had a telex machine; <laughs> that was secure. Um, telex actually still exists, and I wrote a piece for the Economist a few years ago about the functions which it's still—it's um, still used. But the horrific increase in dependency on the internet—I think—and in fact, I know this. I've talked to some of the founders of the internet. Has take, it would have been unimaginable in those days, that we're going to use this for for all the messaging and e-commerce and so on. And it's getting worse because we have now moved from using the Internet as a means of people communicating to a means for things communicating. And I'll talk a bit later on about the way in which the IoT, the Internet of Things, I think hugely increases um, our vulnerabilities, our, our, our threat surface, in a way that hasn't been worked out. When you go beyond the simple problem of identification, you find even more problems. You find software and hardware, which are so complicated that nobody can understand them. Um, I had an electronic set when I was 11, which had three transistors, each of which came with a a wiring diagram, which, when unfolded, was about the size of the top of that table. You could actually look at that, and you could understand um, how your transistor was wired, what the different gates did, and so on. Um, You could not print out the wiring diagram of the chip that I have in my iPhone, that you have in your iPhone. It would fill the entire old theater if you tried to print out. It would be unimaginable to try and print out the wiring diagram of a chip. Modern software, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, a billion lines of code. Again, you couldn't print that out. You couldn't even look at it. Um, No one person um, can get an overview. And vulnerabilities are baked in to this because at every stage, this is another very important point, we have prized convenience, and innovation and low cost over security, because if we'd really gone down the road of saying, how do we make this secure? Well, we'd have never had email. We'd have never had the World Wide Web. We'd never had any of the things that we take for granted. And these innovations have been hugely welcome. But at every stage, we've built in a bit more vulnerability um, into the system. Um, I've been trying to... There's, there's a very fine NGO called the um, uh, Campaign for Trustworthy Software, which is trying to get back to the idea of having trust so- software that would be as trustworthy as a car. Now, if you think how often your computer crashes um, and how we have just accepted that, that's just something that happens, not just with Windows. It can even happen um, with Apple computers. Things go wrong, and you think, oh, dear, well... And you phone up the IT um, desk, and they say, well, have you tried turning it on and off again? If your car regularly broke down and your garage said, have you tried turning it on and off again, Um, or have you tried taking it to bits and putting it back together again, you wouldn't be very impressed. When things go really wrong on our computers, they say, well, um, try wiping all the data on your iPhone and and reinstalling it. It's just one of those things with the iOS um, upgrade. It does that occasionally. And we just take that for granted. We've got so used to unreliability in computers that we barely even notice, we think it's just it's it's it's, it's just uh, that j- Microsoft Microsoft joke. That's not a bug; it's a feature. But in in anything else that we depend on in our lives, we'd be horrified if our kitchen appliances or our cars or anything like that w- was going on. But we've just accepted this um, a level of unreliability and complexity in hardware and software that no lo- that no longer that no longer surprises us. There's two. And there's so many vulnerabilities, it's hard to know where to start. But the two I want to cover um, particularly are identity and navigation. There's an awful lot you can do to make a network secure. You can have defense in depth. You can make it much harder to get root. You can have virtualization so that people aren't actually running their own computers. They're just running a session that runs off, off the server. Um, and these are, you know, more and more of this stuff is coming on. You can m- monitor anomalies on a network and, 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 and react very quickly to them. But two things that I think are absolutely fundamental, uh, identity and navigation. And identity, I think, is the, is the single biggest problem because we have got into the habit of believing that people can be identified by their email addresses and their passwords. And this, if you get an email which says it's from director at, dot, at dot uk, asking you to do something, you'll do it. And that is a fundamentally insecure form of messaging. That email can be spoofed. It's trivially easy to spoof an email. It's trivially easy to spoof an SMS. And in my book, I describe how I met Kevin Mitnick, and he managed to send an SMS to my phone, which appeared to be from the mobile phone number of someone in Buckingham Palace, saying, hi, please give Kevin all my passwords. Um, It's really not difficult to do this sort of thing, and most people have no idea how to protect themselves. Um, from uh, from a spoof email, um, it's also trivially easy to get into someone's um, email account and to send messages to everybody in their address book. Um, they only have to click on an infected link or click on a, an infected attachment, and you are in their account. It can be automated, and you're sending out messages that appear to be from them are indeed from their account. But people take that um, take that take that seriously, and that can then lead to more people infecting their computers. It can allow used to send those famous... emails. I guess everybody here has got this. It starts off something like, I'm writing to you this to you with tears in my eyes. We were in, in Holiday Inn, insert slightly unconvincing place, and we were mugged and they took, um, I took my phone and our wallets and the embassy has given us our tickets back home, but I have to pay the hotel bill. The flight leaves in an hour. Can you wire some money to Western Union? Now, most people in this room probably are savvy enough to think that's just a fake and you just delete it without thinking. But what happens if someone's hacked into your email account and has sent that in your name, and your ancient aunt or some other friend who's perhaps not as savvy as you has thought that was true, has followed the instructions, and is a couple of hundred dollars out of pocket. Well, who's <coughs> going to pay her back? Answer is, if you're feeling guilty, um, you will. So our email accounts are t- taken as signifiers of our identity in a way that I think is is, 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 is absolutely Lethal. Now, of course, there are ways around this. You can have two-factor authentic- authentication, three-factor authentication, um, but these are still the, the sort of people who use these are much better protected than those who aren't. But still, the vast majority of users don't don't have that don't have that protection. Um, I think there's an answer to that, and I'll get onto that in, in a moment. I think we, that there are ways in which we can have assured identification on the internet. Um, but, but the other problem, which I think is 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 kind of almost more difficult because I don't see how to solve it, um, is the problem of navigation. You can have a very well-secured network. You can scrub attachments as they come in and out. You can have very heavy um, authentication so nobody gets on um, without um, having got both a dongle and a password and you know, monitors their gate analysis as they go into the um, office and all sorts of other things. But as soon as they browse the Internet, they're taking a walk on the wild side. Because the sort of cross-scripting attacks, the sort of um, things that happen when you go to a, a website that can be a completely legitimate website, we saw this with the CFR um, attack. Council for Foreign Relations, entirely reputable American um, think tank, not quite as good as Chatham House, perhaps, but you know they would say the same about Chatham House. And there was a very clever watering hole attack on that, involving a graphic which was particularly targeted at people who had um, addresses, I think um, IP addresses, in Taiwan. Very sophisticated, very targeted. Went there, there was a graphic that wasn't really a graphic, and it was then part of an attack which infected their computers. And I'll go into more detail in, in that in the book. So, how do we deal with infected websites? Um, it's very hard. I don't see how we attack this from the browser point of view. Even if Chrome is scrutinising, or Google is scrutinising lots of websites. They may flag up the very dodgy ones, bestpornxxx.com, whatever, and say, "Do you really want to go there?" Um, but it's very hard to screen infected um, in, in infected websites, particularly if we have adaptive malware, where each component of the malware doesn't look um, doesn't look particularly threatening. It's only when it's combined with uh, with other elements. People will say, well, the answer to this is awareness. And they're right. Awareness is um, absolutely vital, and we're very bad at doing it. The Economist's in-house motto is we make boring things interesting and complicated things simple. Um, Our friendly critics might say we also first simplify and then exaggerate. But certainly those are the skills that I I brought to this. And I have tried quite hard to write this book in a completely jargon-free way. I went through it ruthlessly, uh, to the point that reviewers say this, this, is, this book is obviously aimed at novices, as if this was some kind of crime. Damn right it's aimed at novices. There are plenty of cyber books out there aimed at professionals, and not one of them can be read by a, you know, a normal, non-technical reader without their eyes glazing over um, in a couple of minutes. So I make absolutely no apology I'm aiming this at novices. But we've got to get far, far better at getting these messages across. Now, I don't think that's hopeless. I think that we have um, for example, in road transport, back in the 1920s 1930s cars were lethal weapons driven by people who had no idea what they were doing. They might try not to kill themselves in a crash, but they were perfectly willing um, to kill other people and didn 't think anything uh, didn 't really think much much had gone wrong if that happened. It was just there the, the, I remember Punch magazine running a campaign. I don't remember this personally, I'm not that old, but Punch magazine um, in about, I think, 1914 was running a campaign against what they called racers, which were people who drive through villages very fast in their de Dion boutons or whatever cars they had then. And they would kill people and they would just say, "It's too bad, he shouldn't have walked in front of the car. Complete lack of personal responsibility about this machine you were running. But we've gradually got a lot better at this. We have you know, don't drink and drive, can't click every trip, speed kills very basic messages that even if you have no idea what the difference is between a gasket and a gudgeon pin um you know that your car is something that can do you damage but you also know it can do other people damage you make sure your tires have the right amount of tread on them you do your mot and so on and it's not just public awareness i think this road safety thing is really important that the the single biggest contributor to road safety is drivers behaving and the single biggest Um, contributor to security on our computers and networks um, will be informed behavior by users. But there are a whole load of other things as well which I think also um, should be borne in mind. One of them is that we've attacked the road transport problem from criminal liability, civil liability, regulation, social norms, and um, shareholder interest. So if you produce a car that kills people, or, for example, pollutes the atmosphere in a way that kills people, as Volkswagen is now discovering, your share price crashes. you may lose your job. That's sanction number one. If you are sufficiently irresponsible as a car manufacturer, um, you may go to jail. If you're sufficiently irresponsible as a driver, you may go to jail. If you're a sufficiently bad driver, you may lose your insurance. Um, if you're quite a bad driver, not quite bad enough to go to jail, but you're in a crash, you may be sued by the victim of this crash, and you'll lose a lot of money. And um, We have the Highway Code. Um, which is not, doesn't have the force of law, but everybody passed a test uses it. So we've attacked the road safety problem um, from all sorts of different angles. Not one of them is a magic bullet. One wouldn't say the only thing you need to do on road safety is to have know, driverless cars. You know, there are no single magic bullet. You can't say the only safe, safe thing to do is to have the death penalty for every driver who causes a crash. That would be insane. Um, but what you can do is you squeeze this problem from every direction. When I was a student at the LSE in 1980, 6,500 people a year died on the British roads. It's now about 1,200. We cut that and the numbers of injured has gone down hugely. The number of cars on the roads has gone shooting up. And the sort of classic Daily Mail response to this is, well, of course, because of all the traffic, people are driving so slowly, they can't kill anybody. That's complete rubbish. The reason is cars have been designed to be more safe, so when they hit people, they don't do so much damage. We've got much better design of roads. We've, attacked, we've, we've got, much. I would say, much stronger social um, censure against speeding and drinking and driving. So we've attacked the problem from every way. We've seen this as not fundamentally a technical problem, um, but as a human problem. I still think, um, I can see the the outlines of the solution by applying all these things and by having intelligent and expensive um, approaches to the design of networks. I still think that it's going to get worse and not better um, for the time being. It's not just the Internet of Things, which I mentioned um, earlier, which is just hugely increasing the number of devices that are um, vulnerable to an attack over the Internet we 're also increasing monocultures, and some people say the answer to this is just Darwinian. Some people will suffer, some people will gain, and the people who do the right thing will eventually flourish and prosper, and the people who do the wrong thing um, will, uh, will, will perish. And that would be true if we had a very wide range of species all competing against each other. We're not doing that. We're creating enormous monocultures on the Internet. One of the best examples of that is routers. Routers, devices that nobody really takes seriously from a security point of view. But as I explain in the book, um, the moonworm in Brazil was a very interesting and very troubling example of something that was uh, 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 of, of malware that was hopping from router to router. And the people who owned the routers had no idea it was on there. You know, no, nothing came up if, if they were you know, unlikely but possible um, scanning their own networks. It wasn't on their networks. It was on the router. It was on the other side. The ISPs weren't noticing it because why, why should they? And this was, and it became a very became a very serious attack. And we're doing this again and again and again. And the idea, I think, the attack on the Nest thermostat I thought was really interesting. This was a an American um, company which produces an internet-enabled thermostat. And it proved this could be not only hacked over the internet, but even better, if you get access to it for ten seconds, you could stick a USB port, a USB stick. Um, into the thermostat and put, and put malware on it. Again, how would an ordinary owner who's just bought this, this nice internet-enabled thermostat, how would they have any idea that that was going to, that that was going to be a problem? Uh, so I, I think the rise of monocultures is, is bad. Another enormous problem is miniaturization, which we're just beginning to deal with. I had a huge misfortune about three years ago that I had a chance to ask General Keith Alexander, then head of NSA, a question at a big security conference. And I said, generally, you've talked about a lot of things, but you haven't talked about miniaturization. And he, unfortunately, misheard me and thought i talked about militarization. It was absolutely infuriating. I didn't get a chance to have a, have, have a follow-up. But this is, an, it, we see already with drones, um, the idea of the sort of 3D threat. But once, yeah, at the moment, we think that a um, memory stick looks like this. Well, it doesn't have to. It can look like an earring or cufflink. Um, you can have something that's um, enabled, Bluetooth-enabled, um, that can do an attack which is complete, completely inconspicuous um, to any 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 normal security check. And we are extremely bad at picking up um, these sort of things that can be um, possibly even swallowed inside in, 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 inside the in, inside the body. So the idea that there's rather sort of charming thing you get at the moment if you go to a government uh, building as I do sometimes um, to give a, give a talk on, on Russia and they say you have to leave all your electronic devices behind. I say that's fine and yeah, I solemnly put my iPhone and even my pen um, in a little sort of lead lined box and they think that's fine I think well actually you know, I am also wearing cufflinks and maybe wearing a blazer with brass buttons or something. And they have no idea what, what, what's in all this stuff. This is going to get worse and worse um, so evolution has just absolutely not um, prepared us to deal with these sort of ubiquitous, invisible, pervasive threats, um, and who's going to benefit from all this? Well, um, we've got uh, a huge range of potential adversaries, and I'll spend a bit of a bit of time on on those um, hostile foreign governments. Um, first of all, um, China and Russia, Iran, um, among those we should worry about. I'm actually much more worried about the. Um, about crime, I think the, the talk of digital Pearl Harbor and the and digital weapons is kind of—it's kind of interesting. Um, I think there's a specific subset of problems that the sort of digital weapons that a sophisticated country um, can use may be indis- indistinguishable from reconnaissance and uh, sabotage, reconnaissance and espionage. All look pretty much the same thing. And I give a kind of semi-real world example in my book of a country which has a um, missile defense system and finds an intruder is on that system, and they can't work out, is this intruder there for espionage because they want to see, um, have forewarning if the system's going on alert, is this reconnaissance preparatory to sabotage, or is it sabotage? And if you're a sort of paranoid person who runs an uh, anti-ballistic missile defense system, your response when you find an intruder on your system is not to sit back and think, I wonder what this could mean, but immediately activate some procedure which ramps up um, your alert level. Of course, on the outside, people think, why is this country ramping up its alert level? We haven't done anything. Maybe that the espionage agency that got onto the network didn't tell um, it, their colleagues in um, the military that they, they were there. So this looks like a suspicious, um, surprising, rather worrying development. And you can very easily get a sort of escalation in, in, in that, that arena, which would be quite hard to imagine in the kinetic world, when JFK was worried about Russian warship, Soviet warships taking missiles to Cuba. There was no doubt in his mind that they were Soviets. It couldn't possibly even be in Chinese. Now, if you combine the attribution problem and the difficulty of working out what the intruder is actually up to, um, there is a role for, for escalation. So I see that as a kind of discrete but quite, um, quite serious problem. I'm just much more worried about the enormous potential for um, criminals to steal identities and to use them to make money, to extort, to extort money, to um, engage in fraudulent transactions, and so on. I go into this in a bit more, bit more detail in the book. Um, now, usually at this point, someone um, asks about cryptography, and I'm a bit of a skeptic on this. I, I'm not against cryptog- um, encryption. I think it's a great thing. I think any attempt to try and put the um, cat back in the bag is absolutely stupid. The, um, the clipper chip fiasco in the 1990s showed it was stupid. The export controls um, showed it was stupid. The idea that you can ask um, Internet companies to put in back doors, um, encryption back doors, is absolutely clearly not going to work, even if they could be made to do it. Um, people would just go to um, other alternatives instead. If you're reasonably te- technically adept, you can install your own PGP, or you can use um, Proton um, Mail or other um, um, services like that. So strong encryption is here to stay, and it's pretty much free, and everybody can use it. And that will make um, life a bit more difficult um, for people who like um, hauling in large amounts of data, which is in plain text. And um, that's just the way the world's changed. We used to write everything on postcards, now we're putting everything in envelopes. Um, but I think that there's a huge sense of false security that encryption um, brings in. I always get very worried when people say, well, that's okay, it's all encrypted. Encryption is only as secure as the person holding the key. And the I think there's a kind of geeky enthusiasm for um, having even stronger, you know, you've got... 500 and you know, x-bit encryption. Well, I've got twenty forty eight bit encryption. The my encryption is done Well, actually, that, that's that's kind of the wrong question. That's like saying you've got one bannum lock on your door. I've got two bannum locks and a steel door. That's still fine. But who's got the keys? And we are extremely bad at protecting um, encryption keys. And we've seen this. I mean, I thought the the hack of the OPM database. Uh, which is the Office of Personnel Management. They had an encryption. Uh, it, it was quite well encrypted, but they made a fundamental mistake when they did the encryption, which meant it was possible to guess, get, guess the key. With the result, the Chinese government now has the um, personal details of 20-plus of million federal employees and the fingerprints of, of 5 million. Um, the... Um, it's quite easy to get hold of encryption keys once you know what you're doing through simple things like keyloggers. Keyloggers are incredibly easy to put on computers. You just need physical proximity for a very short period of time. They can sit in the firmware. You know, virus scans won't find them. Um, they're very, uh, they're kind of, they're really small bits of malware. And once you know that once someone comes in in the morning and this is what they type first thing, you're already half, 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 halfway in. So I think that you know, encryption is like an extremely strong tunnel. Um, but there's a beginning and end of tunnel, and they're human. Um, The endpoint vulnerabilities, um, the ability to read what's on someone's computer screen when you're not actually standing next to them is another one. People thought this disappeared with the old cathode cathode ray tube monitors, but actually you do these sort of tempest attacks. You um, You can have a mobile phone within six feet of a computer, and it will pick up everything that's um, that, that, that that's on the screen. If obviously, not your average mobile phone, but the sort of mobile phone that, that hackers um, or, or high-end attackers can can, can use. Um, so I, I, I caution against uh, encryption is better than no encryption, um, but it's um, a um, it's it's absolutely not a, not a magic bullet. Um, I'm very keen to take lots of questions, and I know we don't have unlimited time, so I'm just I'm going to finish up. On um, my uh, one, one thing which I think is, is a sort of particularly Im, Im, important um, question about what individuals can do, um, I'm the very proud possessor of a um, Estonian digital ID card. Now, this is and the interesting thing: is I'm not Estonian and I don't live in Estonia. Every Estonian has one of these, and Estonia is the only country in the world so far which has built a platform based on strong encryption with multiple. Um, Facts of Authentication um, for basically the entire central nervous system of modern Estonia where we use the internet and we log on with a series of useless logins and passwords and the third and fifth digit of your unmemorable word or is it the first and fourth letter of your unmemorable number and all this kind of you know, security theatre that we go through doesn't work. Estonian works on the, on the basis that every single person in the country has one of these. There's basically... I mean, you can, if you want, try and do everything in person, and that's kind of you know, cumbersome. But basically, you have this very strong symmetric, symmetric key um, encryption. Um, you have a public key, which is your date of birth and four digits. And then you have this card, and you have two pins, one for signing and one for um, making decisions. And this has all sorts of really useful advantages. It means that I can send an email from this, from my edward.lucas.st.e, and it's signed by me, with a very high degree of certainty, you can be sure that that came from me. Um, if I put a document in it and sign that document, it's legally binding. I can also, if I know your... So any Estonians here in the audience? What a pity. I was hoping for someone to jump up and say it's even better than that. Um, if I, so long as I know your publicly available public key, I can send you a document that only you can decrypt. So if you, if there was a mythical Estonian, sometimes when I give this talk there is an Estonian in the office, audience, but if you know that my code is um, 362050, which is my date of birth, um, backwards, um, um, 0034, you can send me an email, nobody else can read it, until I put this in, type in my, my, my PIN, um, and, and open it. And the interesting thing about this is that other countries are really, really... Um, Keen on following this up, not so much for their own citizens. So that's obviously good. But the Estonians have exported this as a global platform that anybody can pick up on. You just go to an Estonian consulate, you do a full biometric um, biometric check, produce sort of real-world ID, and then for 50 euros they'll give you one of these, and it's valid anywhere in the European Union. You can un, under EU law, the digital signature from any EU country is valid for anything that requires a digital signature anywhere else in the EU. So if you set up you can then, you know, whatever you need digital, digital signature for, um, you can, um, in an internal market of 500 million people, you can do that. And now there are applications in America as well um, that's going to be taking that on board. Interestingly, as soon as they did that, the Singaporean authorities um, sent a delegation out saying, this is absolutely brilliant. We quite like this for Singapore, which is also a very on- online um, savvy country. But we see a potential for selling digital ID services um, all over East Asia, because although people may not trust their own government particularly, and you particularly imagine you're Chinese or whatever, um, to have a very strong cryptographic um, um, authenticated ID issued by a notoriously famously well-run country might be quite attractive. So I suspect we're going to see a market developing, In just as we have a market in credit cards, you know, Visa or MasterCard or American Express, I think we'll have a, um, a market in strong digital identities um, which will be produ- Which will be. Uh, you ha- may have private sector providers. You may have public sector providers. And people will start adopting these and saying, "Well, this is the one I like. I trust this country. I like the range of services. I like the options it gives." And I think we're going to see companies saying, "This is the platform we're going to use for everybody in the company." This will be how you log on. Um, log on in the morning. So I've, I've hopped around a bit there. I hope I've covered um, most of the things you're interested at least a bit. Um, thank you very much indeed for not having got your laptop site. It's very distracting giving a talk when you see a whole range of um, Apple Macintosh. Actually, there is one up there, but I forgive you. You're the only one. Um, so, um, so thank you very much, and I look forward to questions. And do please be as, as, um, you know, as, as hostile and caustic as, as, as you like.
0: <laughs> thank you, Edward. <laughs> so do you all feel safe out there. Your identities are safe, yes. Are you despairing or are you hopeful? Um, When you ask questions, uh, can you give us your name and affiliation? And wait for the steward to hand you the microphone. So... um,
2: Hi there. Um, I'm kind of curious about what we're going on about these Estonian cards. Kind of in light of the back, there was like two years ago now, when RSA, you know, that major encryption key maker was found out to be, you know, working with the NSA to essentially produce a backdoor in their sort of crypto security. How would you think that would sort of, you know, in light of that sort of your thoughts on the now the Estonian keys and things, you know, the future of those major crypto keys when they've already sort of been shown now that they're not vulnerable from necessarily an attack, you know, in the front, but by, you know, government essentially including with them.
1: Yeah, so, so the question for those who didn't hear it, given the fiasco with RSA, which was a company that whose business was producing um, dongles, um, things that you uh, used for two-factor authentication, um, how, how much can we trust the, the Estonian um, card? Well, the answer is, you know, unless you want to get into business of making these yourself, um, you are always going to be reliant on how much you trust other people. The good thing, I mean, what, what, rec- sorry, what recommends Estonia to me is that they've been running this system for 15 years now, and they've not had a major breach. In fact, they haven't had it. I mean, no, no one has come out with a um, successful breach of the fundamental security of the Estonian ID system. There have been some people who have looked at theoretical Problems with the e-voting system, but they're all theoretical and based on, I, I would argue, quite um, unreliable, I mean, implausible in, in, in series of um, circumstances. And so, I mean, it, one of the points about this is, if you lose this card, you're done. There's no, there's no way of getting. If you've encrypted something using this card, and you lose it, then that stuff's gone forever. There is, there is, there is no way. There's, there's no way of getting it back. Um, Obviously, if you've sent it to somebody else and they can decrypt it and send it back to you, then, then, then you're right. Um, but I think the fundamentally you have to um, – you know, perhaps one of the other things I'd say is, is it's really important don't have a digital version of it at all. And it's no secret that both um, you know, MI6 and the CIA and other high-end intelligence services are all buying manual typewriters. And they're working quite hard now on how to disguise the acoustic signature – of manual typewriters, because obviously you have a microphone next to a manual typewriter, every key makes a different noise, and so therefore there's all these sort of interesting things about what kind of white noise background you need that doesn't distract the person using the manual typewriter but makes the manual typewriter safe. But the huge advantage of a manual typewriter is you know how many copies it made and you know where the copies are. And if you want to photocopy them, you have to go and make a photocopy and someone's going to ask why are you doing that. So, there's a, so, so I, I think we are moving for really important things away from having them um, online Altogether, But for the, you know, certainly for the sort of things that you, you know, most people do, I would argue that this sort of card is a step change improvement from anything. Any- there is no British bank that offers anything like as good as this for your e-banking transactions. Every Estonian, for their humblest transaction, has better security than anyone in Britain has.
0: Thank you. Uh, Gentleman back with a tie. Can you wait for the microphone, please? And say who you are.
3: Yeah, thank you very much. Um, Ewan Grant, um, former intelligence analyst who's worked in the Baltic States. And uh, my question is partly based on what I believe from speaking to Estonian colleagues is that uh, you are being a bit too modest because my understanding is that you were the first non-Estonian national um, digital citizen. And they... Having seen um, the respect they have for your work on security issues, I can well understand that. The question. I I
1: want a hostile question, please. Right, don't
3: worry. uh, Well, uh, a a provocative question. Who, Who in the private sector or government, nationally or internationally, and perhaps in the context of cyber criminals and Russia and China, not necessarily entirely separate things, who is encouraging you with their responses, and where are you really worried?
1: Um, I'm I'm encouraged by, I think, individual cybersecurity companies are coming up with some very ingenious solutions. Um, So I think that, um, for example, Glasswall, um, they just do attachments, and what they've worked out is that um, JPEGs and PDFs and so on are, you could, you could, there's a kind of mathematical proof has this file been properly constructed when you open a PDF it, you know, there's, there's, there's things it should do and you can basically measure that against a template and if there's something wrong with it it doesn't necessarily mean there's malware on it um, but you can then strip the data the, the plain text out of the um, PDF and rebuild it up to the ISO 9000 standard which is, a, which is the PDF mm-hmm. standard and this has, you can do this very very quickly in a you know, few, few milliseconds um, I think that's a really clever... Given that 80% of attacks happen over infected attachments, and that PDFs and Word documents and JPEGs are sort of the the, the standard way of doing that, um, that's that's already quite quite a a neat approach. I think it's much better than sandboxing, because the problem with sandboxing, you just need to find out how long they keep the attachment in the sandbox for, and if you say they keep it for a day, you just set your thing so it runs after 25 hours. Um, so I think that's quite clever. I think dark trace is quite clever, which is you know, monitor- monitoring anomalies on networks. We're getting much better at looking at um, reducing the number, particularly of false positives, which means that most people keep their... Um, we're getting better at visualisation. Um, we're getting better at um, um, <coughs> authentication um, of, of, of users. Um, we're getting better... So there's quite, I think there's quite a lot of ind- individual things we're getting better at. Um, and, in fact, my piece, The World in 2016, which was um, published in a couple of weeks, is, says that 2016 will be the year that cybersecurity finally starts working, but only for those who are prepared to put the money and effort in. But I think we, the kind of basic tools are beginning to um, beginning, beginning to get there. You have to assume... I, I think the thing that most depresses me is the sort of nonsense that we hear from politicians and law enforcement. When I mean, the head of the FBI says we need, um, we need to have cryptographic backdoors. In the same week that the TSA put up, um, uh, uh, get, uh, that we found out that thanks to the TSA having given a high-definition photo of the approved by TSA master keys to the Washington Post, that people with 3D printers were taking this photo, turning it into um, something you could print out on a 3D printer, and printing out plastic versions of the master keys which unlock 300 million locks I, the day after that, I had, chief, I had breakfast with the chief executive of Samsonite, and he was not a very happy bunny. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's still astonishing sort of complacency and carelessness um, at, you know, at, at every level among people. And I, think it's, I don't want to be ageist about this, I do think there's, it's partly a, a generational thing um, that the people who are, are not digital natives... Um, don't understand the problem. People who are digital natives tend to be amazingly um, complacent and sort of overconfident that they, you know, we grew up with this stuff, we know how to do it. So there's a, sort of, and there's a, there's a, there's a problem either side of the sort of generational um, divide, both of which I mean, I'm sort of horrified by what people of my age do in one sense, and I'm horrified that people of my son's age do in another sense.
0: Can I just follow that up? There's quite a lot of research evidence that shows that even when people become really highly sensitised to all these risks that are out there, they may know about them, but they don't change their behaviour necessarily. They go, they carry on with the same habits and practices, no matter how aware they are. Can you comment on that? And that seems to be fairly uniform across
1: countries. Yes, I, th- I mean I think not enough bad things have happened, basically, yeah. um, <laughs> until you know, we're just. I mean I think ransomware is beginning to. You know, once people start getting hit by ransomware, you no-one know, n- no is complacent after you've turned on your computer and there's a sort of bogus-looking message from something claiming to be the FBI or the Met saying, you know, you've been browsing child porn sites, all your data is infected, it is encrypted, you've got 24 hours to give us 100 bitcoin, otherwise you'll never see it again. You know, that's, a, that's like being mugged. That's a very big, nasty surprise um, when, it, when it happens. Um, so that sort of wakes people up, um, both people and organisations, when it when it happens to, uh, when it happens to them. Um, your businesses um, people who go out of business because of attacks. Nortel went out of business um, because it was um, lost a lot of intellectual property to the Chinese. That hasn't really penetrated through, I think, to the sort of C-suite that we could be out of business from loss of intellectual property. We could be out of business because our um, shareholders sue us because we were careless. Um, we could lose all our insurance. You know, our factory burns down because we had um, Internet-enabled thermostats and Internet-enabled heating systems, and we allowed, you know, got malware on the system, our factory burnt down, and now we don't have fire insurance because that was our fault. You see? So, so I mean, all these things are sort of pushing in at the moment, but I don't think we haven't reached a kind of pain threshold yet where mm. people take it seriously. And you know, with road safety, I mean, I, I grew up in the era where people would be drinking in the pub, driving home, and saying, let's have one for the road. Um, yeah, that, that wouldn't happen now, but that was absolutely standard in the 70s and 80s. Yeah,
0: fellow in the dark jacket there. And then you in the back. Yeah. Your hand up. Uh,
2: good evening, my name is Jonathan with the Civil Service. Um, I'm glad you brought up Bitcoin there because my question is uh, something you've not mentioned yet. I apologise if you bring this up in your book. Uh, do you think there are practical applications of the blockchain uh, in terms of reserving security? Um and if so, can you perhaps
1: give some examples right um and the gentleman with the green t shirt is waiting for the microphone next um, you've, i mean i th- I mean, this may be my next book actually I think blockchain is really, really interesting, and it will be the it 's a as big a change uh, you know, a, a potentially perhaps even more important than the internet um because it means we start getting auto i mean we, we talk about self driving cars you could have self owning cars with the blockchain you can have software which is yeah, with the right algorithms is raising money, printing things out on 3D printers, having them shipped, putting them together and doing stuff so it fundamentally changes our ideas of of, of ownership and, and, and control, um, both in good ways and, 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 and bad ways um, not wanting to bang the Estonian drum too heavily but um, Estonia is very very heavily into the blockchain there because they're always worried about Russia invading them and what happens if they get wiped off the map Um, So they back up the entire country. We back up our computers. They back up the whole country to digital embassies abroad. So either if they have a massive cyber attack or physical invasion, all their important stuff um, about who owns what financial system, all the rest of it is backed up. Um, But they're also putting more and more looking at the blockchain as a way of getting sort of incredible um, resilience and and distribution. So I... I, um, we, the Economist never discusses future operations but if you're a regular reader of The Economist I think you will continue to be surprised and delighted by our coverage on this.
0: <laughs> Where's the green tea? Oh there. Sorry.
1: <coughs> Good evening. Thank you for an excellent lecture. Uh, my name is uh, Stuart McIver. I, I own a company called Get Based Brand. Uh, my
2: question to you is uh, biometrics. Do biometrics in any way short circuit this problem at an individual
1: level? <laughs> I think biometrics are a bit like cryptography, that they can be an ingredient of a strong system, but they're not the magic bullet. And the the, the best thing about biometrics is that they make it very hard to do a sort of full impersonation of someone um, in a face-to-face meeting. I mean, despite what you may see on you know, Bond Films and Mission Impossible, once I've sat opposite an Estonian consular official and they've done a retina scan and a fingerprint, it's going to be very hard for anybody to sit opposite a, uh, uh, an Estonian consular official and produce a retina scan and fingerprint which will exactly mimic mine. So it gives you a kind of very basic fundamental assurance in face-to-face meetings that you are um, who you say you, say you are. Um, there's big downsides as well. If those data are not stored properly encrypted um you can then use them you know, once, once i have a, your retina scan and your fingerprint in digital form i may be able to use that to spoof the you know to you know, get get around something that wants a fingerprint because i'm be able to be you know 3d print something that looks like your fingerprint and so on so i i, I think there's, there's there's a downside to this if the data isn't properly done but if you have the right sort of challenge response um approach where you don't you know, match up the two entire data sets and say, do they match? But you take a, 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 a sliver of the data about the fingerprint and a sliver of the data of the retina scan, um, it, and it's maybe randomly each time. It's going to be much, much harder for the, um, for, 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 for the attacker. But one should never put 100% dependence on it. I think you know, once you, it's, it's a very good basis for issuing um, ID authentication, but then you've got to have other things. And also always looking for anomalous behavior. Um, and if the network flags up this person has never come into work at 2 o'clock in the morning and now someone has come in, logged in in all the right ways according to our computer and they're downloading, you know, all our most important intellectual property and emailing it off someone, that should still flag up a risk no matter how um, good all the computer checks are. You've got to, you've got to have a... a so, yeah, so, but I, I think it's, it's promising and we're getting better at it all the time. And it doesn't just have to... I mean, there's also gate analysis... Brilliantly depicted in the latest Mission Impossible. Has anyone seen that? Very, very clever example because gait analysis is genuinely good. You can tell by the way people walk. And in this Mission Impossible, which is you know, mostly fiction, um, they have to get around some gait analysis. So instead of learning to walk the way um, that the guy they're trying to impersonate walks. They just change the data so it then flags up the way that this guy walks as being the right way of walking. So the, that's a classic example of how you get around the biometric thing. You just change the... Um, you fiddle around with the database so it then, then says that this, um, it's actually this retina is correct and not, not that one.
0: One of the um, words you haven't used, I think, so far tonight is privacy. <laughs> and one of the words that that comes up often... When people talk about introducing, for example, ID cards in this country, um, with or without biometrics, always as a, as a move towards greater security, um, do you think that at the end of the day that there's a real cultural barrier in countries like the UK is there to anyone, moving forward in this way?
1: Is there anyone in the audience, don't be shy, who doesn't use Facebook and doesn't use Gmail <laughs> and doesn't use Twitter or any other social media? Right. Well, we can get together afterwards and have a serious, serious <laughs> conversation about privacy. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's very interesting. When, when we say privacy, we mean lots. Of, we mean we, we mean different things. Sometimes we say privacy, we mean anonymity. Sometimes we say privacy, we mean not allowing sort of digital lens in in on our private lives. Um, I'm in favour. of people are walking out in disgust already. I, I apologise. Um, the um, I think that anonymity on the internet is um, an entirely defensible um, thing, but you you can only really expect to have it um, with consenting adults in public. It's a bit like putting on going to a a masked ball or to the dark room in a kind of um, dodgy nightclub or something. You're going there for a particular reason. You should have a lot of um, sort of mental alerts switched on and you 're not only can you not identify yourself to other people they can 't identify yourself themselves to you, so if you 're happy doing that that 's fine, but I think that in general on the internet, we should have the right to identify ourselves and we should have the right to identify the people we 're dealing with um, that you get once you have strong um, digital authentication of, of interactions and it 's basically how we do civilization civilization is about the trusting exchange of information, trusting Cooperation with other people, um, which we do a million times a day without even thinking. When we drive down the street, we don't have anonymous cars. We have cars with license plates. That, is that an intrusion into your privacy? I don't think so. If someone I come, I'm a cyclist. If someone knocks me off my bike, um, I want to. At least, I may not know their name, but at least if I see their number plate, I've got an idea of who did it. I actually personally think that cyclists should have um, license plates as well. I know that's not a particularly popular point of view, um, but I think you. you so, so I'm. I'm I'm not that keen on defending sort of ubiquitous default anonymity. I think that that causes more problems than it solves. I think if you are willing to um, take the trouble and expense, you can be private. You don't have to go use Gmail, where they read your um, emails and try and sell you adverts. Or you can run Adblock, and then you don't have to see the adverts. But Gmail still knows that. But on the whole, people seem pretty willing to trade huge intrusions into their privacy so long as they're sort of automated um, in exchange for cost and convenience and that sort of epitomizes the way the internet has has, has, has developed. People, you don't have to use Google, you can use dot dot go. Most people use Google because it's faster. The alternatives are there. Um, But I think it's something that people fret about but they don't really care about enough to do at the moment um, very much about it.
0: Mm. Yes, gentleman at the back
1: Thank you very much for a most interesting talk, Mr Lucas. My name is Paul Hudson. I've retired from academic life, so I'm not affiliated. The question I want to ask is uh, related to a comment made by Professor Mansell about five minutes ago. What I don't understand is given the amount of hacking that's going on, particularly in banking and so forth, why banks keep urging us, in fact, to open electronic accounts, make electronic transfers. We also read, particularly in private eye, Uh, computer consulting companies, they keep messing up on various contracts and yet the government still keeps re-awarding them other contracts. Now, is it that I, I I should point out, I'm the world's most ignorant uh, person on computing and IT. Now, is it my ignorance or my madness or is this an irrationality of the banks for fashion? Well, I think you're neither ignorant nor mad. Um, I also wanted you didn't teach me, did you? You're not one of my former teachers from LSE, are you? you? You look vaguely familiar. No, okay, sorry. Um,
3: <laughs>
1: um, I, um, I still have a certain amount of guilt about some essays that never quite got <laughs> handed in. Um, and I, I fear I've got a library book out as well. Um, but, um, no, I mean, I, I think it's insane the way, I mean, the way government awards IT contracts is absolutely astonishing. The NHS IT contract um, was a particularly bad example. (coughs) The American government with the OPM, you know, putting 20 million people's um, details on a database that wasn't properly encrypted and didn't require two-factor authentication to get into it. It's absolutely astonishing. It's the biggest, it's far worse than the damage done by Edward Snowden. This was something that basically America did to 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 itself. Um, We've wasted absolutely billions and billions of pounds on things that don't work where anyone in the IT business, apart from people actually selling them, project would have said this won't work because the government has very sort of limited understanding of what it wants and as soon as it's made the contract it then changes its mind 15 times so it becomes more and more expensive and um and what i find so frustrating about this is that our countries that get government and it right and there are financial systems which get their banking it right they just don't have to be in this country um so i i um and i extremely nervous about online banking i think there's um the at the moment, it's easier to make money doing other stuff, um, but there's a lot of very sophisticated attackers out there who are looking at it already, and quite a lot of... I mean, I know this because I'm you know, on the inside a bit, and I have, unfortunately, to respect obligations I've made not to uh, mention banks' names in public. But if you just read the papers and see the number of banks where they see our systems were down over the weekend, and I don't know which is more frightening. They were down because the software just crashed, or they're down because they're attacked. Either way, it's quite bad. Um, yeah, It's quite bad that Heathrow Air Traffic Control went off for a day just before Christmas, and, and this is not breaking any confidentiality, but a lot of people think that wasn't just the software broken, which would be bad enough, that that was actually um, either reconnaissance from a military point of view, someone was on the network and did something wrong and crashed it, or maybe it was deliberate sabotage with someone sending a message. Um, but um, you know, we are far more vulnerable than we think on these things and I, you know, every day when I turn on the news I wait you know, to see which major financial institution is going to have another tale of woe you, you, the, the tales of woe we have already would fill an entire you know, saga and, it, and most of the steps that have been taken aren't going anywhere near close enough I mean, this is another thing I can say actually is, um, until, very, until about a year ago I was going to put this in the book and they fixed it annoyingly just before it happened but Santander um, had a website with um, out-of-date security certificates. Now, I think the, the system of security certificates is completely broken anyway, and I don't trust security certificates, and I strongly recommend you all to have something like Calomel on your browser so you can at least assess the strength of security certificates when you, um, when you go there. But Saturday, was an entirely reputable bank, um, was, was, had, had things that kept, produced you know, flashing red lights on my, admittedly, atypically secure mm-hmm. um, browser and I phoned them up and said you've got an out-of-date security certificate, you should do something about it and the customer helpline said we don't deal with that and I went to the press office and they, said, they emailed me over a statement saying that we take um, cyber security, quote, cyber security, um, extremely seriously <laughs> and um, then a new head of IT came in and fixed it so I thought uh, I, w- I wouldn't be unfair. But yeah, the, the, the level of sloppiness is absolutely astonishing in, in financial institutions.
3: Yep, up there. Oh.
4: Yeah, Ronan Tynan, uh, documentary filmmaker. Uh, Thank you for uh, a terrifying, unnerving and utterly destabilizing lecture uh, because I I actually did naively think that we were slightly better off uh, than uh, we appear to be. But uh, just thinking to the future that you suggested, for example, I think in 2016 we might be able to enjoy some uh, security online. Surely in a world where some countries do not subscribe to the rule of law have no transparency whatsoever, believe actively in a ruthless system of censorship, even online. And in fairness, it was even suggested in the media that the Chinese did succeed in censoring the recent crash to some extent. I mean, is it really possible we'll ever have real cyber security unless all countries have rule of law, no one has censorship, and you have a general kind of liberal sort of model that facilitates that kind of uh, uh, exchange of information freely? Because how can you really stop it without really sort of mass? aware, informed surveillance by the populace at large?
1: Well, um, it's a great question. Um, I think it helps to look at shipping. Um, shipping was the first sort of truly globalized industry. And in a way, it's still a, a planetary disgrace. And we have you know, appalling treatment of <clears throat> seafarers. You have um, horrible human rights abuses happening at, at sea, stowaways being thrown overboard. You have um, rust bucket ships that shouldn't be allowed um, anywhere, and the, um, you know, we had a serious problem with piracy until quite recently. Um, ships were allowed to burn bunker oil, which is a major pollutant, and so on and so forth. But actually, over the years, we've built up quite a corpus of both law and convention that is, you know, hasn't solved the problem, but has squeezed it quite a long way. You cannot dock in a civilized country um, in a ship which um, you know, is a major polluter. You can't, you can't run your um, <coughs> ship on bunker oil, I think, as of this year, um, basically anywhere in northern Europe or on the American east or west coast. So we are pushing back all the time. You have difficulty in getting insurance if you're a sort of uh, rogue thing. The, the piracy, which was seen as an absolutely insoluble problem only a couple of years ago, we've actually got, got quite good at dealing with um, Somali piracy. So I think you can that there are all sorts of small steps that you can do to attack the problem from from every direction. Um, There's a particular problem on the Internet, which is the um, way in which an attack can be launched to the benefit of someone in one country, maybe using a computer that's in another country against a computer that's in a third country to the detriment of someone who's in a fourth country. And our international criminal justice system just really isn't set up to deal with that. And once you find out that your attacker or the computer he's using is in Russia or China or Ukraine or somewhere like that, it becomes very difficult. Though actually also in Singapore, I give the example in the book. Does anyone here know the story of Leandra Ram? She was an America. This is a beautiful example of something that isn't really a cyber attack. You, know, you, you wouldn't describe it as a cyber attack, but I put it in the book. It shows how you can abuse computers and networks um, to destroy someone's life. And she was an opera singer, a very pretty opera singer. Um, and she attracted a stalker in Singapore, so unbalanced stalker, who decided he was going to ruin her life. And so he set up a Gmail address that looked just like her Gmail address, and started emailing people pretending to be her, cancelling all her contracts. So she'd turn up to you know, give a concert and would get an email, and they'd say, "No, you cancelled two weeks ago. You said you were ill." And she said, "No, I didn't." They say, "Look, I've got an email here from me. He Says sorry, can't come." And she said, "Well, that's not my email address." They say. Sorry, we've had someone else now. Um, then he started accusing her of prostitution, of stealing things, um, of being a, also, I mean, just every sort of character assassination. He started harassing all her family members, um, using dialers to phone up her, um, numbers in the middle of the night, over um, uh, you know, faking numbers, using Skype, buying numbers on Skype, and then doing. And I, she, and there's a whole load about this in the book. And she went to the police in. Uh, New York which is where she's living and said look my life's been completely ruined by this guy you've got to do something and they said sorry ma'am we're the FBI and we don't deal with this sort of thing Um, and so FBI stands for something else which is the second two letters of a bunch of idiots Um, I apologize to anyone from the bureau who's here in the room on cybercrime they were way behind the curve And so then she approached the Singaporean authorities and said, look, this guy, I know who he is, uh, because he keeps on, he proposes marriage to me 15 times a day, Um, can't you do something? They said, ma'am, we're very sorry, you're not in Singapore. If there's Singapore, we'd do something. So she was completely stuck. Nobody would take, her career was at an end. Her boyfriend had left her because he couldn't cope with the harassment. Her family, ancient parents were having sort of, you know, massive um, harassment. They had all go to unlisted phone numbers, but he was managing to track those down as well. And in the end, the only thing that worked was that I found out about her case, and I was international editor of The Economist at the time, so I assigned a reporter and we printed a story about her. And at that point, suddenly the FBI got really, really interested in solving it. But that can't be the way we solve these problems. You know, I can't do that every week. And now this ghastly man is in jail for quite a long time, and she's uh, career's back again. But, you know, that to me exemplifies, if you can't do that, even when it's a really clear case, of, you know, photogenic female victim in the, in the country that has the world's strongest criminal justice system being attacked by someone, uh, for someone who's clearly deranged and quite dangerous in a country which probably has the strongest criminal justice system in Asia, what on earth chance do we have of solving anything else?
0: Mm. There's a woman up there. You had your hand up. You still have a question off yeah. at the top? Yeah. Great. Lady in the
1: middle there. Can we stick your hand up to the microphone, Gertie? go
0: down but then there's a woman with a grey jumper as well. Hi, my name is Sheila and uh, I was at the LSE from 1964 to 1967 so you can understand why I put my hand up for using telexes and various other things that are slightly age-related. Can we go back to Singapore and Estonia? They're very small populations. Is that relevant Because when I was very active in no to ID, which wasn't against ID cards per se, but really the databases and the security on the databases, I understood that you can have very big databases and they may work, but they won't be secure. Basically, out of size, security and working, you can only ever have two at a time. Is that still true and do you have a solution for it?
1: Right, it's a, it's a great question, and I, um, I'm very glad we didn't get the ID system that the government was trying to on us, because it wouldn't have worked, and um, it would be very expensive, and, and I think there's, there's two points here. One is, yes, I mean, I mean Estonia is unusual in that it was an early adopter. They started from a clean slate in the 1990s, and there's an extremely high level of trust between state and society. So basically, Estonian citizens like their government. They don't feel scared of it. They trust it. It's got a very good record. There's reason to trust it, so they weren't um, and, the, and it's a, a, a very technophile society. It had very high rates of mobile penetration, internet penetration, and so on. So it was kind of easy, um, an easy sell there. Um, I'm not sure being small actually helps because your costs relative to what you're doing are much higher. It's easier to have something. You know, a lot of this stuff is quite easily... Scalable. You don't have you – know, they have to buy the same sort of servers that everybody else has to buy, and they have to run a tax base that's much smaller. I think the more important point is that they don't have a single centralized database. Um, what they have is a thing called the X-Road, where every different um, government database can um, check things with other databases without actually getting the information. So if I want to check, are you over 18? You know, you're applying for something, and I say, I need to check you're over 18 – um, I send, you, know, with, you, you give me your ID card, you authorize me to make the check, um, and it just says, is this person over 18? It doesn't give their date of birth. It just says, is the, are they over 18? If I'm trying to, you know, if you want to give your medical records, you know, you've seen a consultant, he wants to send to another consultant, he says, do I have your authorization to send your medical records? Only that bit of your medical records will um, will, will go over. So it's a kind of decentralized system with a very clever architecture called the X-Road, which is now also being used in Finland and, and Latvia and various other things. But I think you're, I mean, you're, you're right to be worried about big databases. I, don't think, I think small countries have, uh, they, they have flexible decision-making, but they actually have much higher, much higher, higher costs. And I, I think that the, the future is to have – don't rely on your own government. Why do we have to rely on our own government to issue our um, digital IDs? I don't, see, I don't see why there's nothing the British government has done that makes me want to trust it. You know, we would, you know, would you want a government-issued credit card? I suspect probably not. So why do we have to have a government-issued um, Internet ID card? Maybe we have to have a government-issued passport for, for travelling, um, though you know, these passports are also available for not huge sums of money in the refugee camps of, uh, um, of, of Turkey and, and Jordan and Lebanon. Um, other countries' passports are also available for either more or less... But I, I, I'm, I'm not thrilled by the way our government runs its passport registry, actually, um, but I, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very happy with this. And if you prefer the Singaporean one, you could have that instead, or indeed you know, do without and stick with your, pass, your password login and the last four digits of your unmemorable number or word. Edward,
0: are you still having to keep taking yeah, questions sure, yeah. a bit longer? Okay. Uh, Was that person? What you've got the microphone? Good.
5: Hi, uh, my name is Arya Moranto. I'm a postgrad student at LSE, and I heard you speak this summer in Helsinki. And I've been meaning to come back to this Estonia issue since then. Um, So following the 2007 attack um, on these government administrations um, in Estonia, I know that they implemented a lot of new security measures and um, they've been working on this card, for example. And I would argue that that's fine for um, cyber criminals, for economic espionage, but if the threat is Russia, this is really um, inadequate because a lot of these uh, systems have already been infiltrated. The malware is in place for an attack to be launched. So I'm not sure um, how that relates to an attack from Russia. And secondly, I was wondering if you could comment on, in relation to Russia again, on NATO Article 5 um, now being applied to um, cyber attacks. I
1: have two Thank excellent um, excellent questions. Um, for those of you who don't know, Estonia was the victim of what's believed, although not absolutely proved to be the first sort of act of interstate um, cyber attack or cyber warfare. Um, but it was, it was interesting. It was an extremely primitive DDoS attack, uh, distributed denial of service attack, which is a bit like the sort of things I used to do when I was at LSE, where we'd go to somewhere we didn't like in large numbers and stand around outside and try and bring normal business to a halt. Classic student demonstration. And um, the, um, you know, including occupying the administration building, which I'm sure doesn't happen anymore now. But a DDoS attack is basically like a student occupation. It's large numbers of people turning up who by sheer weight of numbers make it impossible for the website or for the computer um, to work properly. Um, The difference is that instead of whipping the union general meeting up into a frenzy and then storming off to the the administration block, um, so I'm... Joking here, this is not isn't going to happen, and and I was never personally involved in occupation. Don't listen either. to him. That <laughs> um, um, they were quite fun, um, but the um. Instead, you do it with a, a, a network of computers, typically a botnet, which is an enslaved network of computers where the owners may have no idea that their computers are being used as part of their attacks. So you infect the computer, you can then send it instructions, and it will just send a click every second on the LSE website so that you get a million computers all clicking on the LSE website. The LSE website crashes, and it doesn't cost you. It doesn't cost you, you can do that for you know, $100, like Bitcoin or something. You can buy a botnet for a particular... Um, length of time from a bot herder directed at the attacker, and and we've just seen anonymous do that to the Saudi websites, um, Saudi government websites including the ones that are supposed to be well protected against DDoS attacks um, in protest against an execution and crucifixion of a um, demonstrator which is meant to be happening this week. Um, So that was the attack on Estonia and Estonia got away pretty well from that attack. They didn't actually, there were few seconds away from having some quite serious damage to their, their equivalent to the 999 service. But actually, normal life continued. It didn't knock it, knocked the Estonian public-facing websites off air for a bit, but they, they survived um, pretty well. But if you talk to Estonians, they assume breach. You know, there's no such thing as a network that is 100% sure that the Russians aren't going to get on that, or the Chinese or, or whoever. You have to assume they will get on there. The question is, what can they do after that? Can they get root? So you make absolutely sure you cannot, but you cannot by purely keyboard means get control over the network. And, it, and of course, that helps in a small country where everybody knows each other. So if you need to get root on an important government network, it involves going to someone's office saying, I need to do this. And these are probably people who either they're at university together or their children have dated or both. That's the advantage of small countries. So it's really, really hard to spoof that sort of interaction. Um, and you know, so, so that helps. Um, you, you design, you have defense in depth, you have a really you know, resilient network. Um, if the aim is to corrupt data, you have lots of backups in, in the cloud and so on. So even if someone was able to get into and to destroy the Estonian land registry, which is the sort of thing they're worried about um, because it's entirely digital, well, actually, you, it's backed up four times a day, and you just be need to recreate the transaction since the last... Back up. So I, I think, and, and the other thing which Estonia has done, which I think is, is, is of enormous interest to the Americans and to everybody else, is they've pushed cyber defense out into what we in this country would call the Territorial Army and in America would be the National Guard. So they have, they, they have a thing called the Defense League or Kites Elite in Estonian, and they have a Cyber Kites Elite, which is a um, division of their Defense League, 20,000 people, total about 3,000 in the Kites Elite, who are all IT guys. And they have the best. And Estonia is quite a wild place. So you know, the top IT guys in Estonia, the sort of people who write, you know, do stuff for Skype and things like that. And it's it's wonderful being an IT guy. It's even better if you're also a reserve colonel and have a security clearance. Yeah, they're able to get really, really good people into their cyber defences who then you know, do stuff at weekends and evenings and be called up if necessary. But they can get a kind of talent into their sort of military and intelligence cyber of a kind you'd never be able to do in this country. Um, because, and it's quite interesting, the Americans try to do that, and they had a video of the first sort of cyber bit of the Marines or something, and they're all square bashing, and I thought, all the IT people I know, who may be quite patriotic, they're not going to want to put uniforms on and sort of march around, um, you know, chanting things, but the the Maryland National Guard is trying to do this, uh, 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 the Latvians and the Finns also. So I think you can get, you you can try and suck in IT talent, and, of course, that helps both from the, you know, attack and from defence because these people spot vulnerabilities and say, yeah, we'd never do that in Skype, so we suggest you don't do that in, in, in government either.
0: Could I, can I just follow that up? Um, yeah. I think the Estonian event also led to a lot of developments on the civil side, not just the military side. And in my understanding is that as a result of that, there's been a lot of effort by policymakers to try to attract industry into investing more, in designing in security features, etc., into networks, huge push. And a lot of that discussion, in my view at least, <laughs> goes round and round in circles. And one of the single major reasons for why no agreement gets reached is because these are big competing companies. And if yeah. you go for the big suppliers, they can't agree on standards. And so they keep saying, we'll go this way, we'll go that way, and you get a stalemate.
1: Well, actually, I, I agree, but it's far worse than that that we, one of the huge problems we face um, is that if companies are attacked, they keep it secret. You know, the first thing a CEO asks is, how bad is it? And the second is, does anybody need to know? Because it's terrible. If you admit that you've been badly breached, you know, your customers aren't going to like it, your suppliers aren't going to like it, your employees aren't going to like it, your shareholders aren't going to like it, um, and yeah, you could be in serious trouble. So we, Whereas with public health, if you get a notifiable disease, by law, you go into your G- GP with Ebola or multidrug-resistant tu- tuberculosis, and even in the most libertarian state in America, you will be in isolation because you might infect someone. So we have very strong rules about serious diseases um, in the real world. Um, in the world of computers and networks... Um, there's still a you know, there's no mandatory duty to report we don't have a standard taxonomy yet of threats so one company may say well we had this thing it was done by this group of hackers another company may say um, we had this vulnerability exploited and a third company will say we found this malware on our system they're actually all the same thing we need to have much I and mean, the americans are working towards this with a um, sort of threat uh, quite a, quite a good system of threat threat reporting um, but we don't have anything like the sort of you know who for digital um, for, for digital attacks we also have a huge reluctance to talk between government industry and um, ordinary users so if you talk to gchq or to nsa they're extremely keen to find out about the problems you've been having um, then you say well you, you've talked about sharing information so how about some sharing they go terribly sorry old chap official secrets that can't say anything and that just, that, that's just not sustainable. and that was actually the position five years ago. I'm exaggerating it a bit. With enormous tentativeness and reluctance, GCHQ is now becoming, through something called CPNI, um, Committee for the Protection or Commission for the Protection of National Infrastructure. They're becoming the kind of you know, .IT. Uber help desk for the you know, top1,000 companies in Britain. And they quite often, from, you know, from having discovered stuff. As GCHQ, they go to a sort of famous British company X and say, "And oh, we've got some quite bad news for you." And they say, "What's that?" And they say, "Your network was breached." And the you know, company says, "What does that mean?" And they say, "Well, actually, you know, we've you know, we have discovered, as GCHQ, that you have Russian or Chinese or whatever hackers have got into your network and they've stolen all this stuff." And we think you ought to know about it. And Yeah, so they're getting better. Typically, it's the way that companies find out they've been breached is not that they notice it themselves. It's someone from outside comes and tells them. Either they've got a supplier or customer or someone who's been breached and they say, hang on, we think this affected you too, or it's a government agency come and tell them. We we still think about security in terms of silos Mm. in a way that is really detrimental to our ability because the hackers, uh, the adversaries, can hop. Yeah, they may be private sector hackers who are also working for a government. Um, they may be doing some criminal stuff on the side. So the idea is: is this government? Is this commercial? Um, is this pranksters? Well, actually, it can be all. It's all three. It's all of the above.
0: Um, I suggest we take two or three questions in succession, give you a little bit yeah, of sure. a rest, yeah. and then we'll see where we are. We'll probably be out of time by then. So I'll take you, and you, and you in the blue shirt. Yep.
1: the people who are leaving, please don't forget to go downstairs and buy a book before you go. (laughs) There may may be almost none left for everybody else.
6: Uh, Hi there, uh, Mr. Lucas. Thank you for a wonderful talk. Uh, My name is Jarrett Bonnet. I actually just graduated last year from the LSE in uh, international relations with my master's. Uh, I'm currently working with E.J. Struss here that works on transitional justice and uh, peace building. My question specifically relates a little bit to international law in that respect. Um, And I want to go back specifically to the IOT that you mentioned about at the beginning, um, because you mentioned various times here throughout that, we're getting to that point where cybersecurity is potentially reaching its potential. And yet, with the Internet of Things, this sort of brings a whole new black box that brings a lot of different sort of security measures. And uh, I I wanted to uh, ask. How this will relate to uh, international law and the potential challenges that um, states would have in collaborating and cooperating uh, in this regard? Because you have organizations like DARPA and other ones that are, uh, or other foreign ministries that are now putting a lot of money into combating um, yep. this. Um, question. So, yeah, Short question. Sort of,
0: good, good. Yeah. Okay, no. there was somebody down here. Was there? I'm not sure who I saw first. There's a woman here. We'll take you. Yeah. And then one more from the fellow at the back.
7: Hi. Um, when you when you asked um, how many people don't use Facebook and so forth, I raised my hand and I wasn't aware of anybody else around me raising my hand. And then when you started talking about the opera singer, I thought, oh my God, it's happened to somebody else. The reason I don't do Facebook, the reason I don't do those things is because I had somebody doing very, very similar to me. Mm-hmm. And because that person was in the States and I was here, there wasn't. the States wouldn't do anything about it, Britain wouldn't do anything about it. And I'm still frightened, and I still find so, suddenly something just goes funny in this around the time that maybe this person's having a birthday or, or, or something, and I don't know what to do about it, and I don't know where to go about it anymore, and I don't know. I mean, but it, it's, I can't do basic Facebook that everybody else is doing because I just don't feel secure about it.
0: Yeah, I think you're not alone. So Can we take the last one back there, the fellow in the blue shirt?
7: Uh,
2: yeah. Um, my name's Simon Wilson, former public servant. Um, I, th- I thought the analogy you used about squeezing the issue of IT security, I won't say cyber security, the IT kind of risk issue from various diff- different directions, um, comparing that to the you know drink driving and that kind of stuff was really good. Um, f- the way I see it, the, the government can't really drive change and innovate. The the private sector can't really legislate uh, in that sense, nor would they want to create kind of boundaries for themselves. And most users out there don't have a clue and just want something shiny and new that they can watch stuff on. Um, maybe this leads into your upcoming paper that you're releasing about 2016 being the year for it all to happen. Uh, but you also mentioned about needing some kind of hurt to happen before this really changes. Do you foresee that hurt coming and given kind of the Snowden and the, the kind of Julian Assange stuff, WikiLeaks stuff that's happened, secure, you know, big security contracts going to IT providers for government that that governments are more than happy to put their, you know, protected networks into off, offshore kind of cloud services and Briefly that kind please. of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Um,
1: what do you see coming that's going to make the change? Right. Well, first of all, I'm just so sorry to hear what happened to you. I mean, you are not the only person and we... It, we, yeah, yeah, it's 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 a it's a really serious problem. Our reputation. We've decided that we believe what is said about people online. We decide that we believe what um, you know, a Facebook page says about someone. We decide, you know, identity, um, real identity, and electronic identity have been sort of baked together, and yet they're not secure. And it would. And if you imagine trying to do trying to ruin someone's life in the pre-internet era was possible but it was very risky and it had rather limited effect and now you can you can blacken someone's name all over the world and quite likely nothing bad will happen to you and i'm just so so sorry to hear that um um, on the international law point i think that we are inching towards a recognition that international humanitarian law applies to 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 warfare using digital weapons and the chinese have begun to sign up for that that's very interesting there was a you three or four years ago, no government admitted it had digital weapons and um, the nobody, uh, offensive cyber warfare capability. And so these questions weren't even being asked. And, in fact, yet again, Estonia, sorry, the Tallinn Manual on Cybersecurity sort of broke through on that and we're now having discussions about who's a competent, who's non-competent, how far the necessity, proportionality, all these other sort of questions of, of the laws of war apply to um, weapons over the Internet. Um, it's still very difficult. There's a question up there. You know, when does it, w- What is an Article 5? You know, what, what counts as an armed attack? Um, you know, and what you may feel is an armed attack, from your point of view, may be seen from the other side as just a bit of harmless reconnaissance. So we're at an early stage on that. Um, but the Internet wasn't really designed with international law in mind. It's sort of, you know, it's, the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, which grew up to regulate the telegraph, which is an even more primitive um, technology than the telex, is sort of g- trying to take it over from a sort of UN point of view but with huge resistance because we feel that's basically means the Russians and the Chinese to do what they think um, are information, what they call information weapons, which is what we call news. Um, so, so it's a very early stage. I think the... Um, and on the commercial side, there's just basically nothing there at all. Um, the, that leads on to the, your question about pain, that I think that we are going to see um, you know, companies going out of business, companies suing their insurers because they say we're insured and, and now you're not paying up. The insurers saying, we didn't realize how bad your cybersecurity is. The, the, the pain threshold is rising up quite fast. But I think that the, the way I see it, really, just in brief, and this is to finish with, if you really know what you're doing, you're willing to put up with quite a lot of cost, quite a lot of inconvenience, um, spend quite a lot of time. Um, there are things that you can do that they won't make you completely secure, but they will make you secure against any realistic threat because it will be so hard to get through your security that they'll go and attack someone else. Maybe if you're, if you're the direct object of interest from in GCHQ, the NSA, the Russians or the Chinese, then you're probably back to manual typewriters. But if you're the direct object of interest for any of those of the big four – um, you've probably got other problems other than cybersecurity. So, you know, there are, you, you, they'll be so interested in you that in the end they'll be using rubber hose attacks to get your password rather than trying to get through your keyboard. keyboard. <laughs> Does everyone know what a rubber hose attack is? Yeah, for those who don't know what a rubber hose attack is, um, re, re, read my book, which is on sale outside, just a few few, few, few Here copies left.
0: <laughs> so will you join with me in um, thanking Edward Lucas for a really provocative talk?